Today on this episode of the PV Roundup podcast, Specialist Spotlight. I look at people in extreme conditions. I'm really interested in how people physiologically and culturally and behaviorally cope with either extremes of climate or extremes of physical activity, and in some cases, extremes of both at the same time. Today, Dr. Kara Ackerbach, a human biologist and assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, joins the podcast to discuss topics at the intersection of metabolic physiology, evolution, culture, and behavior in this first of a two-part edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Kara Ackerbach. Dr. Ackerbach is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the director of the Human Energetics Laboratory. She is also a concurrent faculty member of the Department of Gender Studies. Dr. Ackerbach is also a 2022 recipient of the Human Biology Association's Michael A. Little Early Career Award. Dr. Ackerbach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you having me on today. No, it's my pleasure. So first off, when I start the podcast, I always ask folks, what's their academic or, or research setting? Uh, so I am at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm in the Department of Anthropology here. And uh, I, I'm what's called a biological anthropologist and very more specifically, a human biologist. Uh, there are many subsections within anthropology. And in particular, I, I look at people in extreme conditions. I'm really interested in how people physiologically and culturally and behaviorally cope with either extremes of climate or extremes of physical activity, and in some cases, extremes of both at the same time. So um, the other thing I always ask, because I, I'm always curious, is how folks found their path to where they are. Can you share that? This is the question I ask on my podcast with every single guest. So yeah, uh, I was I was totally dead set, which is interesting, on pre-med when I was in college. I'm going to be a doctor. I was actually interested in emergency medicine at one point or orthopedics. And uh, I had to take an anthropology course as just, you know, part of requirements for undergrad. And I fell in love with it. I just thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, but, you know, a, like a lot of undergrads, like, what can you do with an anthropology degree, which... People out there listening, do not discourage your children or friends from anthropology degrees. <laughs> um, they can lead to wonderful things. Uh, but I kept taking more anthropology classes. And round about my, my junior year, I decided I like this too much. I need to find a way to pursue it. And so I decided to apply to graduate schools rather than medical schools. And um, I got into WashU in St. Louis, which is was and probably still is one of the top anthropology programs uh, currently in the country. And I had originally gone, believe this, uh, to work on the biomechanics of orangutans. That was my initial idea. <laughs> and I had completely shifted to human physiology and, and humans in extreme conditions throughout my PhD career. And um, yeah, just kept on going to, to now being a professor at Notre Dame. And I actually think that that's precisely one of the reasons that I wanted you on here. I think that a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are much more focused on clinical medicine. And I always think it's good to take a step back or maybe supplement that with folks like you who are sort of grinding through the science that leads to eventually our understanding what's going on. When I read your faculty bio, I was thinking, you know, this could have been someone who'd gone into sports medicine. And evidently, I was correct on that guess. Yeah, you're not far off. <laughs> you're not yeah. far off. So I'm fascinated by your work with the reindeer herders in northern Finland. Can you go into how you got started with this project and where this research is leading you or has led you? Yeah, the, I mean, 
this this is a, a lesson in persistence and patience, if nothing else. Uh, so I'm going to take a step back to my dissertation fieldwork, which took place in the Rocky Mountains of the United States. And I followed folks who were doing these National Outdoor Leadership School courses that lasted three months. And I, I followed them throughout the different seasons so I could see how their body reacted to summer versus winter, for example. And it turned out I loved the cold so much more than any other part of that experience. So it was a personal thing. Like I found the cold really delightful. And it's also kind of understudied, at least within the world of biological anthropology. And, and I would even say in, in other fields as well. And so once I had completed my PhD, it became a question of how can I focus on cold uh, and still ask questions about high levels of physical activity as well as cold exposure. Uh, and the reindeer herders were kind of the first that came to mind. And uh, so the reindeer herders, some of whom are indigenous Sami, some of whom are not, uh, go all of the way across uh, Scandinavia and into Russia as well. Uh, and I, I, I reached out to researchers in Norway, Sweden, and Finland uh, asking like, hey, this is what I want to do. Is this something you are interested in? It was a literal cold email as the right. pun yes. I like to give, given what I do. Uh, and Finland was the, the, the one that seemed really, really excited about it, the, the collaborators there. But it meant, and for anyone who wants to do field work and starting a site on your own, I went back and forth to Finland for three years before I ever collected a single point of data, which is not something I would necessarily recommend for people earlier in their academic career because it means you don't get publications out of those three trips. You just keep grinding away. That's the old foundation work. Um, I, I think if you if you watch some of these home improvement shows, this is the stuff that doesn't show off, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the foundation. It is never a line on a CV or anything. You don't get any credit for it. Right. Uh, and so those three years was developing, you know, this project and trying to figure out what was what it is we can do within a lot of constraints because reindeer herding is a very difficult uh, occupation and it takes a lot of effort and so you you have to be able to work within their schedule and that that means you sometimes have to make concessions about the science <laughs> to some degree of what data you can collect in this context uh, and so the the main questions I went in initially were, just kind of getting some baselines, like how many calories are these folks spending both at a resting level and then at a physical activity level? Uh, what is their very basic level of health? Um, and then one of the really exciting parts of it was the brown adipose tissue measurements. And, and brown fat is the kind of fat that burns only to keep you warm. Right. And I want to stop here because as a clinician of a certain age, and this will be some of the people in our audience, I can remember learning first at very beginning levels that humans didn't have brown fat. Now I'm aging myself. But then later in my career, oh, humans have it, but they have it when they're infants and toddlers and it goes away. And now I've read both you and I think your postdoc, that humans have brown fat and like all humans have it. Humans, even in really warm climates. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can you go a bit more into that? Yeah, absolutely. And one, Tim, this doesn't age you at all, because let me tell you why. In my second year of grad school, I gave a talk at a conference and um, I had brought up that there's the potential for brown adipose tissue among human adults and that there was some evidence for it among minors, like back in the 1940s and 1950s. And I was audibly laughed at by those conference goers, like, no, 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 there's no brown fat among human adults. You're, you're absolutely crazy. And so I used that as some, you know, rage fuel to continue my research. And I was openly laughed at at a conference and ended up being right in the end. So yeah, brown fat, I mean, part of the issues with brown adipose tissue and, and why it's been so hard to, you know, 
rediscover in adults, if you will, is an easy way to measure it. It, it, is, it has taken a long time for us to come up with field-friendly ways to measure it and non-invasive ways to measure it, because for the most part, you'd have to be doing a, a PET scan and you would have to give people labeled glucose uh, to see where it's being taken up. And it was interestingly actually rediscovered by folks looking at cancer. Um, they were giving folks these, these, this labeled glucose to see if they could identify where the tumor was. And as I'm sure any clinician knows, imaging rooms are cold. Oh, they are not, yes. you know, room temperature. They're chilly. And, you know, there are good, good reasons for that to keep bacteria down and whatnot. Uh, but that meant that when they put people into the PET scans that they were a little bit chilly and it activated their brown fat, which then sucked up that radio labeled glucose. And people were, you don't get symmetric tumors in the same location from person to person to person. And so they identified this as, oh, this is something different. And then they finally came to the conclusion that it was brown adipose tissue. Um, and we have since come up with ways using thermal imaging cameras, infrared cameras, and uh, mobile metabolic units to measure actual metabolic rates to be able to infer brown adipose tissue activity in field settings. Wow. Yeah. And because obviously a portable PET scan all the way up in uh, in Lapland is not going to work. And sadly, biological anthropology does not get that kind of funding. So, <laughs> so and I'm sorry, again, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, and I'll keep going about the, the brown fat with the folks. But I did notice in one of the statements, you said that there may be something here that we could, and I'm always this way because I'm clinically minded. Of course. There may be something about brown fat that we can work with to help with the epidemic of obesity. Absolutely. Um, and it is not a silver bullet. Let right. me put that out right away. This is not going to be, you know, the cure to obesity. Anyone trying to sell, tell you that is trying to sell you something and beware. Right. I mean, I think that the way I look at this is much the way I think that we look at diabetes or, or cancer is, is that you have to have sort of a quiver. A toolkit. You know, uh, Lots yeah, of a toolkit, a utility tools. belt. Yeah, exactly. Right. So brown fat is really interesting in, in this respect for a few different reasons. One is if you activate brown fat, it increases metabolic rate. But as we get, uh, so for example, my the, the Finnish reindeer herders I work with, when I cold stressed them and saw brown adipose activity, their metabolic rates went up an average of 9%. And you know, that's that's not insubstantial. That that That's a meaningful amount, but it's highly variable. Uh, and so a colleague of mine who worked in Siberia her population didn't. It saw some increase, but not as high as mine. Uh, and uh, my my postdoc, she was my uh, graduate student at the time, did work in Albany. She also saw an increase in metabolic rate for people in Albany, New York, but not as much of a metabolic rate increase among folks in Samoa. And so there's lots of variation in, in how brown adipose tissue actually responds from person to person and population to population. So the metabolic rate increases one. Uh, and, you know, people say this as a good reason to sleep with the window open or don't sleep with pajamas on to just kind of keep things cool and maybe activate that brown fat. The other one is the way that brown fat eats, if you will, uh, the, the sort of substrate that it metabolizes to actually activate and produce heat. And there seems to be a preference for glucose in some populations. And so that might be a great way to clear glucose from the bloodstream when you think about diabetes. Uh, but in other populations, such as my reindeer herders, it actually preferred fatty acids. And so, yeah, and uh, the Samoan population seems to have like a mixed fuel uh, between glucose and fatty acids. And so there's a huge amount of variation that we, we aren't even scratching the surface of given how few people we've actually measured these things among. 
And one thing that I did notice, and this is another, again, coming from just a, you know, a viewpoint of epidemiology, but also medicine, is in one of the articles you mentioned that the female herders had almost the same high metabolic resting rate as the males. That's not something that we hear in medicine. That's never been heard anywhere. Like, this is literally the first time, like, even within biological anthropology, that was a what the what moment of, like, even, even just, like, Briefly looking at the numbers the first time, I don't think I actually realized what I was seeing until I ran the numbers and did the stats. And I'm like, crap, these females have higher resting metabolic rates than males, and that has never been seen before. Um, And this could very easily be an artifact of having a small sample size. And so I'm going back in February to to increase sample size, so on and so forth. Um, But typically among cold climate populations, we expect to see elevated resting metabolic rates, and it can be as much as 30%. Uh, we've seen this in Russia and in and, and other locations as well. And so among the herders, uh, the males were all over the map. They were either right where you would expect for a temperate climate, somewhere where you would expect for a cold climate, and some even had lower metabolic rates than you would expect for their body size, whereas every single female I measured was elevated and extremely elevated, significantly so. That they were, they had absolutely higher metabolic rates than the males and exceptionally higher metabolic rates than the males when you control for differences in body size. Okay, so that brings me to another question because I noticed on your Twitter page that you did a talk entitled A Woman the Hunter. <laughs> and does that, pl- when, I, when I read that bit about the increased metabolic rate, I'm like, who would be better to be out there chasing down prey and running along with them than somebody with a much higher metabolic rate? Am I missing the point there? It's actually for different reasons entirely. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a bit of a passion project and a book I'm, I'm, I'm working on that, that's under contract at this point. We will definitely have you back when you publish that book. I, I am. This is something as a father, a husband, and a feminist, this is something that really interests me. So yeah. we will definitely reach out to you when the book comes out. You're going to get the soapbox talk right now. So stop me. Feel free to wave and stop me when you need to. No problem. Uh, so... The vast majority of the story of human evolution has been written by and about men. And a lot of that has boiled down to this overemphasis on the importance of hunting in our human evolutionary trajectory. And in just about every single reconstruction that you see in our past, it is men that are doing the hunting. Therefore, evolution is only acting upon men and and women. And I should be careful with the, the gender and sex terms. I'll get back to that in right. a moment. But women are just being passively dragged along evolutionarily benefiting from all this selection happening on men. Or gathering while they're gathering. waiting for the men to come back with the, the, you know, the mammoth. And Tim, literally, you go back to some of this literature and they say things like, well, plants are just much better for, for women to work with because they don't move. And there isn't this psychological demand of tracking down plants. And my brain just explodes um, in, in all the worst ways when I read these things. But yes, let me also just say, I should be using male and female terms here as, as for the sex, and sex itself is not just a binary, it is on a range, and, and usually man and woman refers to gender. Right. Um, so when it comes to this woman, the hunter talk, um, and this is that, that title is in direct response to an edited volume called Man the Hunter, uh, and so there's a parallelism there. Okay. This is, uh, the, that talk was very much grounded in exercise physiology research in which females are insanely underrepresented. Uh, When you actually look at performance studies 
female-only performance studies make up like 3% of the publications. And then almost two-thirds of uh, studies are male-only studies when it comes to athletic performance. And that's that's horrible. Uh, oftentimes, females are just treated as small males, and that's just not how that works whatsoever. In medicine, the equivalent would be that children are not small adults. So that everyone who's been through medical training has been told in pediatrics that children are not just small adults. So why would it be that women are just small men? Exactly. So I, I, I totally get you. It's not an, not an issue of scaling here, uh, for sure. Uh, so in the exercise physiology literature, we we are coming to this, I, want to, I don't want to say conclusion because we don't have the data because females are terribly underrepresented. Uh, but in general, females seem to be better set up for endurance-based activities and males better set up for your anaerobic, your power, your strength sorts of activities. And a lot of this actually does come down to estrogen. Believe it or not, folks out there, estrogen has massive effects throughout the body that have nothing to do with reproduction. Um, estrogen receptor is estimated to be 1,200 million years old. Um, well before there were sperm and eggs involved in anything, uh, whereas the testosterone receptors estimated to be about 300 to 600 million years old. So testosterone, um, estrogen has been around for a very long time and has huge, huge, huge implications for how our bodies function and our health and well-being. Um, one of the things that estrogen does, especially estrogen receptors on skeletal muscle, which is going to fuel endurance, is it increases the amount of fat somebody can burn to do exercise. And fat is this long, slow burn. It means you can keep going and keep going and keep going. Uh, and so females tend to not fatigue as quickly as males do in endurance running. Uh, also true for just like weightlifting style tests of do all these leg extensions. Females can actually do more longer than males can. Uh, females also have more type one muscle fibers and those are the slow twitch, the endurance muscle fibers, whereas males have more type two. Um, uh, they are far better at sequestering glucose and that relates to estrogen as well because that helps improve, uh, insulin resistance, those kinds of things. Uh, and they also seem to be better at pacing themselves in endurance. And we haven't figured out the mechanism behind that. Uh, but when you look at marathon data, females are able to maintain a faster speed throughout a marathon, whereas males start to decline closer to the end of that marathon. And so when you talk about hunting and what hunting may have evolved in our evolutionary past, some of which would have been up close and, you know, spearing, but some of it would have been this sort of kind of, you know, run an animal down persistence style hunting to some degree. Females are better suited for that metabolically than males are. That, ignore that entirely if you want, there is zero evidence to suggest that only males were hunting in our evolutionary past. Zero. That's the first of the two-part episode of this Specialist Spotlight. Please join me for part two. For more stories like these, visit us at pbroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pbroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask what's my Flash Briefing. Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Kara Akabak, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. 